We're talking with Stefan Talti about his excellent book, Koresh. So how did Vernon become David? How did he afford to buy this huge stockpile of guns? And why? what were the steps that led to the fateful uh, confrontation that ended in a siege and 76 people dying? We're going to get into that, and then we'll take some of your calls right after this on Coast to Coast. Stephen, again, I'm so impressed by the degree and level of research that went into this book. It's just magnificent. It reads like a novel, really, but it's all true stuff. Can you share with us a thumbnail sketch of how and when Vernon became David? Sure. So this is about 1990, um, and he starts thinking about ways to sort of, you know, change his image a bit. Um, Vernon Howell just doesn't sound to him uh, like a prophet or, or someone of, who's of God. So um, the, the Branch Davidians are obsessed with David, the, the old biblical king. They see themselves as descendants of the house of David. So that's really where the, the name David comes from. And Koresh, there are different interpretations, but um, David always said that it was sort of the name of the God of life and death. Um, and he said later to the FBI that Koresh is the sound that comes out of a person's mouth when they die. Huh. So he's sort of posing himself as um, this really light and dark figure, not only someone who's connected with God, but who's also connected you know, with death in the end times. These, uh, the Davidians, including David, they make occasional pilgrimages to uh, Israel. They think there's a connection there. I thought it was really interesting in your book, you you mentioned the Israelis uh, have a name for uh, this phenomenon where people show up at the Wailing Wall and suddenly think they're Christ or or something like it. Yeah, it's called Jerusalem Syndrome, and it <laughs> happens all the time. People get to this place that they've read about for so long, and they think they're a figure in the Bible, you know, often Jesus. So they're sort of experienced with these kinds of, of people, um, and they saw them as someone who was trying to convert people away from Judaism. So he was banned from the country, um, and that was a big blow to David Koresh because he'd been telling his followers that the end times were going to begin with a war between the Israelis and the Arabs. It was going to happen in Israel, and this was going to be sort of the battle that launched the, the the apocalypse and the return of Jesus Christ. So, you know, when you tell your followers that it's going to happen in Israel and then you're banned from Israel, that creates a problem. So he started to, to say, well, the end times are going to happen wherever I am because I am so important to God that it could be Texas, it could be New York City, wherever I am, that's when the event is going to happen. And then after a while, he's not uh, hes not uh, a disciple of God. He is God, right? He proclaims himself to be God. Yeah, you know, it, it's a pattern with David that he keeps announcing that he's different people within the Bible. So at one point, he's the Lamb of God, interpreting the seven seals, but then he kind of gets an upgrade, and he's, uh, you know, he's a prophet. Perhaps he's the last prophet before Jesus returns. And then finally, he is the Messiah. He is Jesus. And a lot of his followers actually believe that, that he you know, he was the new Messiah. How did they get money? Uh, you describe in the book recruitment that was even international in scope, but what's the source of the money? Uh, like a lot of cults, they encourage new members to bring in, you know, sell their houses, move to 
Waco and give half your money or a third of your money to David Koresh. So he had sort of reserves from wealthy followers. He also had, you know, there was a bakery in California. There were different, uh, there was a law firm that was sort of based in Waco. We had streams of income coming in as well as these sort of deposits that his devoted followers would, would give to him for, for anything he needed. And you've got a lot of research on what he did with a bunch of that money. I mean, he, he built the rebuilt the compound into one big building that was essentially a fortress, and then he filled it with guns. And, and uh, the list that you describe in this book is pretty astounding. Yeah, I, the, the whole compound thing is fascinating. Before he got there, or when he got there, um, Waco, the branch Dominion compound, was just a scattering of houses and a chapel and an, an administration building. But David wanted everybody together. He wanted total control of everyone. And so he built this huge compound that looks, in a way, sort of like you know, the Alamo, in a way. It's a, it's a fortress. Um, so he was sort of placing himself within Texas history, echoing the Alamo, and also you know, <clears throat> creating this place that's going to be very easy to defend and hard to attack. So he was already thinking ahead. Uh, and, and the guns were definitely part of that. He started to stockpile heavy weapons, grenades, automatic, automatic weapons. And, of, of course, a lot of these things, uh, you know, they violate federal law. Yeah, because they're, they're, they're modifying these things to become automatics. And, and of course, grenades. I, I think you have a story in the book about a, a delivery guy who suddenly drops a package and out pops this stuff. And it's obviously not something that typically everybody buys. Yeah, that's really where the federal case began. This UPS delivery guy was making a, a run to Mount Carmel, the uh, the compound, and a casing for a grenade dropped out. It didn't have the powder in it, but he knew what it was. He reported to the sheriff, and the sheriff called the ETF. Um, so that's where the federal gun case really began. And there had always been rumors, like people heard explosions that odd hours from the compound or they heard what sounded like automatic gunfire um, because David was putting his followers through their paces. He was um, training them. They had an obstacle course. They had target practice. So this was becoming almost like a paramilitary camp. Um, But the, the grenade was the first real clear evidence that something wrong was going on there. So the the ATF gets involved. They start taking a look at it. Describe the steps that they took. In in addition to setting up the observation uh, site, they they infiltrated. They sent a guy in. Yeah, they sent an agent in to pretend to be, you know, interested in joining the faith. Um, and then these they had these um, surveillance agents across the street in the house, claiming to be local college students. Um, but David and the Branch Davidians really saw through that. They suspected they were being monitored because these guys were older. You know, they drove late model cars. They had briefcases. They didn't look like college kids. So um, they be, they sort of became more suspicious, kind of ratcheted up, ratcheted up the paranoia. Um, but the ATF um, did manage to get one guy in there, and he was a valuable asset. He told people what was going on. But what the ATF didn't do they didn't realize that David Koresh was coming off off the compound. He was going into Waco, you know, to go to the guitar store, go to a favorite restaurant. So had they wanted to arrest him, that was a perfect opportunity. 
but they really blew that part of the operation. They didn't realize he was in town, and they started to think of this frontal assault on the compound to get David Koresh out. And there were so many mistakes uh, along the way, that, that one being that they could have grabbed him without a big confrontation if they just waited and, and paid it and developed some atten- intelligence about what he did and where he went. Uh, could you describe the other kinds of mistakes that, that really uh, came back to bite him? Um, sure. They It was just a badly planned operation. They didn't have any provision for medical uh, relief if anybody got shot. Uh, there was no real plan if um, you know if it rained hard and, and there was mud in front of the compound because what the plan was to bring all these agents in disguised in these cattle trailers being pulled by pickup trucks. Um, so there was just miscommunication. The surveillance team was taking photos of the compound and who was coming in and out. But that never got passed on to the planners. And then there's a very key um, aspect. Um, the Branch Davidians were working in the yard. They were building this pit that was going to be sort of a shooting range and uh, a refuge, uh, a kind of a bunker. Um, so they worked on it every day. And the planners, the guys who were, you know, sketching out the operation, thought that a lot of the Davidians were in there every day. So if you did a, a quick raid, you could sort of catch them outside without having them run for their guns. But the surveillance team thought there was only really a handful of guys working there every day. And even if you caught them, you know, the guys inside, there were plenty of other people there to grab their uh, their weapons and shoot back. So a lot of people have this impression that the guys on the ground the day of the raid, ATF agents, you know, kind of botched the mission. But it was really the planners, the middle management, um, who kind of doomed this operation from the beginning. I mean, just uh, the idea that Koresh had already said he's not going to be taken. He's not going to go back to prison. He's been arming his his followers, all all these big, powerful weapons, and training them. And, and his followers, like him, were prepared to die. Uh, in fact, there was a central tenet of their faith that they were going to die in some big shootout or, or battle with evil, right? Yeah, this is what David taught. He said that... Um... There's going to be a final showdown with uh, Babylon, which is the new evil empire that, you know, that we remember from the Bible. He said this is the new Babylon. It's allied with the Roman Catholic Church and the federal government, and they're going to come for us. So, you know, what's hard to realize is the Branch Davidians actually saw this as a hopeful sign. This was, this confrontation was the beginning of the end times, which meant that Jesus was coming back, you know, within a few weeks. So um, it, it didn't have this sort of terrifying, you know, lethal idea that we have. This was sort of a transformation. They were going to become these eternal beings. They were going to fight on the side of Christ, and they were going to defeat evil for once and for all. So um, it's, it's something that a lot of the branch of look forward to, this final confrontation uh, with the enemy. Uh, if the ATF thought they, they were going to catch him by surprise, they were wrong. Koresh had figured out this agent who was infiltrating was, in fact, an agent. They'd figured out that the the guys across the street were doing some surveillance. And then they got a tip, right? There was a tip that today's the day. Yeah, it was kind of an accident. Um, you know, the word about the operation had gotten out to the media. And so they sent some reporters out there, and one of them ran into a branch division. And they were just chatting, and the uh, 
the news guy said, yeah, there's a big operation coming. It's headed towards um, the Branch Davidian compound. He didn't know this guy was a Branch Davidian. So by accident, um, the Davidians found out about this. The guy ran back, told David Koresh, and they just, you know, they went on their highest alert level. They, they broke out the guns. They broke out their bulletproof vests. Um, and this is another tragedy of, of the ATF decision. They could have called it off. They knew uh, their inside agent told them, listen, he knows we're coming. And that's, that was supposed to be a signal to end the operation. Um, but it's kind of a factor of, you know, the fog of war. and this, this huge bureaucratic machine is already rolling. It was sort of tough to get it stopped and say we're gonna we're gonna call it off, um, but that's what the that's what the management was paid to do, and they didn't make that decision. So um, when the the ATF rolled up in their cattle trailers, the the branch Davidians were ready. You you describe a scene where the agents come up to the house, and Koresh comes out, opens the doors. There's a couple of guys behind him, and he says something ominous and then close the doors, and then the shooting starts. Can you describe that scene, what that was like? Sure. So I spoke to the lead agent who was um, who was going to be the first through the door, and he was running towards the porch, and he saw David Koresh sort of half open the door, slide, his, you know, slide half his body out to take a look to see what was happening. And it was kind of eerie because he kind of had this half smile on his face. Um, the ATF agent is yelling for him to freeze and to sort of drop to the ground. And David Koresh is just sort of taking it all in. He's not thinking of surrendering at all. So he sees what's going on. He, he slams the door shut. And then we have the first shot. And nobody knows to this day who fired it. It might have been, you know, an ATF agent tripping and, and, and firing by mistake. It might have been the Branch Davidians. It might have been um, there was some dogs penned in front of the uh, in front of the compound. And the ATF wanted to take them out. So it might've been a shot taking out one of the, uh, the dogs that, that lived there. But in any case, as soon as it was heard, this huge gunfire, uh, this huge gunfight breaks out um, and, and people are getting hit and injured and killed uh, really from the first few minutes. The ATF guys go down. Yeah. Four guys um, shot during the operation. Um Again, because the Branch Davidians knew they were coming. The element of surprise had been so key to the planners' vision of what was going to happen. But when they lost it, they lost almost everything. Because it's tough to attack, you know, a fortified compound with a tower, with sharpshooters, uh, with people in bulletproof vests. You're sort of going against the odds. And also the ATF without guns. A lot of the guys had, men and women, had 9 millimeters or uh, some light you know, assault weapons, but the Branch Davidians had a 50 caliber uh, sniper rifle that could shoot, you know, two, 3,000 yards. So, uh, yeah, the ATF went there undergunned and really sort of outsmarted. And it's just, you know, it's open territory. It's open field. Uh, they had some ideas on how to protect themselves, but it's a big open space, a lot of mud. And, and uh, once their agents got shot, they couldn't even get them out of there for a while, could they? No, it was a disaster. I mean, they ended up putting them on the hoods of cars and rolling it out or borrowing uh, a car from the media. There was no backup plan. So this has not been a well-thought-out plan. And, uh, you know, four guys paid the price as well as a few of the Davidians who were who were shot through the walls and, and, and ended up dying that day. So that day happens. People have died. 
it's the siege is on. How long does that last? Um, it lasts 51 days, and it's, um, you know, become so important because, as I mentioned, it was one of the first cable news events, uh, you know, of our time. And um, it was also President Clinton's first domestic crisis. So um, he was facing his first big test, and this was going to show what kind of president he was going to be. So um, a lot of things at stake, um, and David Koresh just seemed um, at times to, you know, be malleable and to be willing to come out. People would get their, high, their hopes up, and then the next day or the next hour, he would announce that they were not coming out. So a few people were trickling out, but the main body was staying inside. He was shot. Uh, for, uh, do you know when? Was that the first day he got shot? Yeah, it was. And it was a gut shot or something? He was shot in his side, um, and he also had an injury to his hand which, of course, for the Branch Davidians became um, a sign that he was the Messiah because these were the sort of location of the wounds of of Jesus um, at Gethsemane. So uh, even his wounds sort of, you know, um, reinforced this idea that that the prophecies of the Bible were now being lived out. Um, it became sort of an important factor in keeping some of his followers inside the compound. So the feds are, after they pull back, I mean, they're trying to get in touch with them. They're trying to call this place, and they can't get through, but CNN gets through. And really, I can imagine the ATF being pretty ticked off about that. Yeah, they were they were outraged. But um, David Koresh wanted to get on the air. He wanted to get his message out. So uh, he, got, he had a, an interview with a local radio station really just minutes after the shootout. And then, as you say, the CNN got a got the phone number, called in, and Crush picked up. So they put him on the air. Um, and the FBI had, was sort of taking over the operation by that time. The ETF had pulled back. Clinton had ordered the, the FBI in. And they really sort of blew a gasket. They called CNN and said, you know, what are you doing? You're talking to a mass killer. Um, and, and CNN said, well, this is breaking news. Um, but that's when the the FBI sort of shut down people's access to the Branch Davidians. They right. they only ran one telephone wire in there, and the FBI was on the other end at that point. Stephen Talty is my guest. His book, Koresh, is a terrific read. When we come back, we'll go to the phones. A lot of folks on the lines there with questions. We're talking with Stefan, Stephen Talty about his excellent book, Koresh, the true story of David Koresh and the tragedy at Waco. A lot of you are on the phones with questions of your own. We'll get to as many of your calls as we can right after this. Stephen, one other question before we go to the phones. Uh, can you describe the decision to go in? So the FBI takes over for the ATF for 51 days. It's a siege. Nobody's shooting at anybody. There's no big assault. What went into the decision to go ahead and go in? Why did they do it instead of just kind of waiting it out? Uh, there were a bunch of factors. Basically, the trickle of people would come out um, had basically dried up, um, and David had announced that he wanted to do sort of an, an interpretation of the Seven Seals, so he was going to write this manuscript. And when the FBI sort of measured it out, they thought it could take almost a year to get this thing done. They thought, just thought it was a stalling tactic. Um, and, uh, you know, in the background, this, this idea, it's, it's a very expensive operation. Um a lot of the guys on the ground, the FBI sharpshooters, uh, they need to retrain almost every month. So 
they're going to have to pull the uh, tactical team out and retrain them. And then there was just this idea that the sexual abuse of the kids might still be going on, which was not true. But Janet Reno at the Justice Department thought it might be true. Um, and that was one of the factors in her head when she agreed to the uh, to the FBI sort of assault on the compound. Well, we know how it ended. We know the the flames, the terrible fire that engulfed. And, uh, you know, there are still arguments today about who said it. You, you have some pretty good evidence uh, in, in your book about who, who said it, how it fire broke out. Yeah, I think it's sort of, um, you know, a settled point now that the Davidians set this. Um, the FBI had sent bugs in listening devices um, to listen in on the Davidians. And you can hear them talk about you know, bring that fuel over here, light the fire here. And there are many instances of this on the tape. So, and even the arson investigators said it was started inside. Um, so what happened was the, the FBI went in, tried to insert tear gas, and the Branch Davidians and David Koresh saw this as the final assault and, and really um, you know, lit the fires to sort of speed the end times. Uh, as you note, there are a lot of uh, interesting questions about who shot whom. Uh, you know, some of those deaths look like maybe they were suicides or murders inside the building as opposed to just by FBI agents that, that shot them. Right. Now, yeah, the the autopsy showed that a bunch of people, including David Koresh, um, you know, were shot in the head before the fires took them out. So and that was probably the better way to die. A lot of the... Um, Women and children were down in the bunker. There were no gas masks. And these people succumbed to this terrible inferno that was raging above them. Um, but David Koresh and some of his lieutenants took the quicker way out and, and died by bullet wounds. We'll take some calls on the international line. Don in Alberta, Canada. Hi, Don. You're on with Stephen Talty. Hi, George. Hi, Stephen. Um, my question was, is that there was a... Uh, video that was released they were up it was agents going in on top of uh one of the buildings it's like a side thing going into a bedroom and uh, the one part of the video that was played didn't show the real well they claimed it didn't show the real story they said that the agents actually shot themselves and i think the three agents that were shot used to be um, bill clinton's uh personal uh bodyguards or whatever and then there was another letter that or another because i used to subscribe to newsletter and they listed all the the people that had worked for Bill Clinton that end up uh, having untimely demises in the security system. You uh, you know anything about that particular part of it? Yeah, no. There's you know there's a lot of myths and rumors that that go along with Waco. Um, you know these were ATF agents. They didn't guard Bill Clinton, um, and there's no real connection between the guys who died and and, and his, his protection services. So, you know. The thing that frustrates me about a lot of these theories is that the government, in a way, did get, did get people killed, got its own agents killed, but more through its own incompetence and arrogance than through any sort of grand conspiracy, you know, connected to the president. Thanks, Don. That was a good question. East of the Rockies, Brother Don in Kent, Ohio. Brother George and Stephen, thank you so much for taking my call. You know, uh, there was a reporter that... Um, approached the postman and asked for directions, and it turned out the postman happened to be a Branch Davidian, and, of course, he tipped off David Koresh. Uh, it was interesting what happened. He uh, 
uh, completed a shift, tried to get back in, and of course, you know, it was cordoned off, so he uh, uh, was refused. Uh, he broke away, started running toward the compound because he had a wife and children there. He was crossing over a barbed wire fence when he was machine gunned, an MP5 machine gunned to death, left on the fence. And two or three days later, the family pet started bringing body parts back, so they had to take him down. Also, I talked with the guy, one of the survivors, Dave Trubado, who happened to be David Koresh's drummer. He said he was on the second floor of the compound, and he says he opened the door, he heard an extremely loud noise, and he said he looked down the hallway, and there was a ball of fire following, you know. And when you look at that, they're poking holes in the building on the windiest day of the year, and then they have a tank with napalm dripping from the barrel. They're trying to say it was a reflection, but the tank was in a shadow. You don't get a reflection in a shadow. You only get produced light. Okay, Don, that's quite a bit to chew on there. Let's let uh, Stephen wade into that. Right. Um, yeah, the, uh, the, the evidence about the flares that are, you know, these sort of... Uh, Bursts of light that are shown on some of the tapes, the FLIR tapes. These are forward-looking uh, infrared, so it picks up heat and signatures. So, you know, there is some sort of controversy around interpreting those tapes because I think it was the Washington Post gave it to like 14 experts, and seven said it looked like gunfire, and seven people, seven of them said it looked like uh, reflections of water. Um, I just found the evidence. Uh, of it being not gun flashes to be more convincing because the time signature of a gun flash is not something that would be picked up by the, this kind of technology. So, yeah, there's, there's a huge amount of rumors and, and conspiracy theories. Um, I haven't heard a convincing case of why the you know FBI would have, the sharpshooters would have fired into the inferno to kill the Davidians were being consumed by this blaze. To me, I just haven't seen enough proof of that. Um, but certainly the government did uh, misbehave and they tried to cover up what happened. The ATF certainly did that. Um, so I just hope we get to the real truth about you know, what the government actually did wrong. You, you do make the point, Don, thanks for that call. Uh, you do make the point in the book that there's there's quite a bit of evidence about Davidians who were involved in, in setting the fire and spreading fuel, right? Yeah. Um, you know, even some of the people who emerged were found to have uh, kerosene and other fuel on their clothes. Um, I think seven out of nine had those traces. Um, I, I just, the, the evidence is overwhelming that they set the fire and you know, David had been predicting for years that this was all going to end in flames. This was really kind of a biblical symbol that one was going to go through a purifying fire and emerge the other, out the other side as an eternal being to become a soldier of Christ. So the fire was in the theology of the Branch Davidians, and it was in David Koresh's mind. So we can hear in the tapes him directing people to, to move stuff around and to prepare for the FBI assault and to set those fires. You have 76 people killed. 20 of them were kids. 20, right? Yes. Uh, it's, it's um, yeah, it was sad. I mean, every everyone I spoke to for this book, um, you know, some people did not really mourn the Branch Davidians. Um, they felt they had made their decision. It's really the kids that 
especially the FBI agents, some of the uh, law enforcement people, and of course the branch civilians themselves that that really point up what a tragedy this was. Those kids had no choice, you know, of whether to be there or not. Some of them got out, but the majority stayed inside. And yeah, we've we've never um, we've never been able to sort of uh, justify that from either side. It's just uh, a tragedy. First time caller, Rich in Washington State. You're on with Stephen Talty. Gentlemen, good morning. Uh, great topic. Um, I'd like to elaborate a little bit on this. Um, I'm not going to name names. My father was actually there. He's retired DEA ATF um, on the whole Waco deal. Um, he is elderly now, retired Vietnam veteran. And it's been really interesting over the years on some of the things that he has elaborated. And Waco is one of the things. Um, Stephen, you've hit on some very key points on there. The one that I really zoned in on this morning was the first shot scenario. Um, now, according to my father, and he's been approached by many authors and stuff over the years, not so much now the last probably 10 years, but um, according to my dad, uh, our government did make that first shot, um, incidentally, um, call it a conspiracy, cover up, whatever, etc. But according to my dad being right there on the front line, his partner was one of the guys that was shot on the roof. Um, it's, it's very interesting because our government failed completely, in my opinion, on this. We were outgunned. They had plenty of intel um, to apprehend Mr. Koresh at several given points uh, before the tragedy occurred, um, you know, when they invaded the compound. Um, there's, I think, a lot more to this story, a lot of conspiracy theories and stuff. He doesn't talk a lot about it, but there's been a few certain key things that he has shared with, with my brother and myself on this. And I, I just find it interesting how a lot of this, I think, gets swept under on, on a magnitude of, of an incident this happened, especially with the children and stuff. Well, Rich, I think and, you, you might want to check out this book I can't, because it addresses a lot of the rumors and, and, uh, and tall tales that have come out of it and tries to clear a lot of it out. You should maybe check it out. Uh, Stephen, did you want to respond to what Rich said so far? Um, sure. You know, the interesting thing about the first shot is that I, I'm not sure it totally matters because, you know, the ex, the ATF was going in to make that arrest. They were going to go through that front door. The Davidians were not going to give up David Koresh. This is sort of the planning was so awful that it almost made a confrontation and a, a gunfight inevitable. So whether... You know, the first shot was a you know a misfire. It was a, a somebody tripping. Whether it was intentional is almost beside the point because you know this was sort of uh, this was sort of dyed in the wool that there was going to be a firefight because the the Koresh people were not going to give him up at that point. Yeah, Rich, thanks for the call. Appreciate you sharing that with us on the wild card line. My ad in New York. Hey, young lady. Good evening. Good morning. How you doing? What an excellent program. Um, so, so more, uh, well, I, first part, uh, and by the way, Janet Reno called the shots, as I remember, but a brief three-part, and I'll listen over the air. First of all, a little bit about your process to the writers out there, your research and process, how deep you got into studying general aspects of cults, and are you familiar with Stephen Hassan, 
a former Mooney, uh, now mental health um, and cult expert, whose 2018 book, um, The Cult of uh, President Donald Trump, How the President Uses Mind Control to Manipulate Us. And if you have my questions, I'll hang up and listen over the air. Thanks so much. Okay. Thanks for the question. Um, yeah, I did a lot of research on cults um, because David Koresh sort of fit the pattern of that charismatic leader. Um, and, you know, my intention with the book, as far as my process, was really to find people who hadn't spoken before and really focus on David, uh, where he came from, as I said, his origin story. Because I feel like this whole story always goes back to his childhood and the, uh, you know, the humiliation he suffered there. Um, as far as the, the book you mentioned, I haven't read it, but there is a fascinating thing that's sort of happening to America right now is that, you know, really reality is being debated in a way that, that hasn't happened before. People are seeing the world through their leader's eyes and in a way that is, you know, total. Um, and so we've had to have these debates of what is real and what is not. And that's something you know, that the FBI dealt with David Koresh, he would say that your tanks are really biblical chariots. And, and so they had to deal with this alternative vision of the world. Um, and no one could agree on what was right and what was what was phony. Well, we've seen, you know, we saw after this, the Timothy McVeigh, Oklahoma City. We've seen the growth of uh, groups, the militia groups, Boogaloo Boys and Proud Boys and showed up on January 6th uh, and who knows how many other militia groups around the country training out in the out in the sticks out in the woods ready for armed confrontation seems like from the portrait that you paint of David Koresh Vernon Howell uh, this was always going to end this way if he had a choice it was always going to end in some apocalyptic uh, a bloody battle right that's where he was headed yeah I, I do believe that um, there's some people believe that the FBI could have gotten him out I do think it's if they had sort of, you know, negate, negotiated more and, and longer, that they could have gotten more people out. But for me, Koresh and the hardcore followers were not emerging because, as I said, this was the key to their, you know, transformation into um, into the Messiah's army. So it, it's very tough to give that up, especially when everybody around you believes it. Um, even if you have doubts, you know, most of the people stayed. Uh, you know, I thought it was really your book is just right down the middle, factual, uh, really well researched. I wonder, have you heard from any Branch Davidians, any of the people who may have survived from there uh, that you maybe have interviewed for the book and then they've read it? Have, uh, is there any chance that any of them, anybody's threatening you because of what you wrote? No, I haven't really. I've, I've just been sending the books out to the people uh, I interviewed. So some of them are still reading it. Um, and. I appreciate what you said. I did try to do something that was, you know, unbiased because there have been so many rumors and, and conspiracy theories. Um, and this is an important event in American history. So I, I do think um, we owe it to ourselves to sort of dig into the truth of it. I saw that there were some TV series. I did not see this recent series, but I wonder if did you watch it? And uh, did, it seemed like the timing, your your book could make for a great series or movie by itself. I don't know if there's any plans for that or whether this other series that happened takes the, the impetus away for something like that. Yeah, there have been a few um, series on 
on um, the whole event. Uh, a lot of them really focus on the last 51 days. Um, I think where my book is different is I really look at the first 33 years that preceded it. Um, we have had some interest in film and TV. I'm not, I'm nothing, nothing concrete yet, but um, it, I think it would be great to tell the story from the beginning, from, from what David experienced and how that led to Waco. Yeah. Well, Stephen Talty, man, this is a great book. It's a great work. You're welcome here anytime, whatever your next project is. I hope people will check it out. Koresh, the true story of David Koresh and the tragedy at Waco. Thanks for being with us and staying up late tonight. Thanks for having me, George. All right. Thanks also to uh, my earlier guests, David Marler and Tom Orzachowski. Check out that estimate of the situation. And my thanks, as always, to my colleagues there at Coast to Coast, Adam Thompson and Donna Walker, our webmaster, Ryan Stacy. Dan Galani, Chris Boros, Lisa Lyon, Tom Danizer, and, of course, George Norrie. I'm George Knapp. I'll be back in a couple of weeks, everyone. Good night.